And so God one day says, I want you to see who I am at my heart. So besides the billows of smoke and the fire, he sends Jesus Christ and says, this is who I am. Jesus who says, I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. This is who God is. And so when he says, I will bring destruction, I will bring pain, I will bring the fire by burning anger, that is part of God's justice. But if that's the only picture that's left, it's not a complete picture. And so he says, I'm going to do something even better than that. So you'll get the full picture of who I am. What if instead of just leaving rubble, I do a work and a wonder, and I bring about something better than it was before? You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. It's great to be back uh, with you going through the minor prophets, and we're looking for the gospel. Um, I used to, the joke was always with uh, students was um, to find the minor prophets, you know, you close your Bible, and then you look for the cleanest section on the side of your Bible. That's where there are no fingerprints. And, you know, you know the, the story, which is, you know, you start your daily Bible readings and you get to about Leviticus and then that's, you're done for. And you try to pick it back up again. You jump to the Psalms for a little while. Uh, but the minor prophets, they can start running together. You feel that way? Okay, who was supposed to go where and, and why is it in this order? And didn't we just deal with Assyria? Now we're in Babylon. Now we're back to Assyria again. And, but God does know what he's doing. And he wants to help us. And uh, I made a point one time about Proverbs, and I want to apply it to the order of the minor prophets. The order wasn't always like this. Uh, a Hebrew Bible might have had a different order. I believe the Hebrew Bible ended with Second Chronicles. Not that it didn't have the rest of the books. It was just in a different order. So order isn't always that important. But sometimes the way you receive something, the way it comes down to us, God has a hand in that too. So think of Proverbs. One of the point I made a few weeks back when we talked about Proverbs was that it looks like it comes in a jumbled mess and that you can find books. I have a book that takes them all out of the order in which we have them and repurposes them based upon topics. And so here are all the Proverbs about money. Here are all the Proverbs about love, all the Proverbs about whatever. That's very helpful. And you say, why didn't God do that in the first place? I like to think one reason is because life comes to us in a jumbled mess. That's the way life hits us. You can't usually get up in the morning and say, all right, Lord, here's what I want for my spiritual breakfast. What he says is, here's what we're offering. Whether you're hungry or not, that's up to you. And that's the way life hits you. I think the way in which the minor prophets are arranged, and we're jumping back and forth in different time periods, and some long and some short, is really meant to keep you being reminded that God's at work in all different directions. And he's thinking about what's happening before it arrives. He's thinking about what's going to happen after it arrives. And every time you open a new minor prophet, regardless of what came before or after, Having the knowledge of we know sometimes, we know what happens 200 years after this, gives you insight on how to read this one. We're hearing the nervousness in the voice of a prophet, and then finding out later what happens gives you a sense of understanding where they were coming from and where they were going. 
So when Zephaniah starts, uh, we are in the final decades of the southern kingdom. Under the reign of Josiah, who if you remember near the end of his reign, he's trying to bring about some reforms. The problem is that Israel is just not where it's supposed to be. It's not going to be where it's supposed to be. Sometimes you can start too late with your reforms. It won't make that much difference. And of course, even a good king can be led by his pride to make bad decisions. And he meets an untimely end as he runs uh, Jerusalem right in uh, to uh, right headlong into Babylon. He leads Judah in a, in a collision course with uh, with Babylon. There are three parts to the book of Zephaniah. And the first part is judgment on Jerusalem. This is chapter 1, 1 to chapter 2, 3. And uh, this is an insight I got from the Bible Project. It says, if you notice, there's all this judgment about Jerusalem. You're going to be brought down. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to have God's judgment brought upon you. But he never says who's coming. Now, you see, we already know. We know it's Babylon. We have other prophets that tell us that. We've got the larger story. But try to put yourself into the shoes of the first readers. Why doesn't Zephaniah tell them who's coming? Well, he does tell them who's coming. It's the Lord who's coming. doesn't matter what clothes he chooses in terms of what nation he will use. It's the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, day of the Lord meant God is showing up. So it could mean a battle. It could mean a disaster upon a city. It can mean the ruin of a city so that it never gets rebuilt. It can mean the second coming of the end of the world. Day of the Lord. And Zephaniah is proclaiming day of the Lord when God's going to bring judgment upon Jerusalem. But do you remember that even though judgment is often God's word in the prophets, it's never his last word. And even in this first section, he can't help himself but say, and yet there is hope. Look in chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3. Even as he's declaring God is going to bring disaster, judgment upon Jerusalem. In chapter 2, he says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. We know something about the character of God. When Jonah preaches to Nineveh, there's not even a a hint in his preaching that there might be an opportunity for something of blessing. And yet, when he says 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown and they repent, God provides blessing. Here is Zephaniah announcing, if you will seek the Lord, if you will seek to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Maybe, just maybe, our good God will relent from his anger. Part two is judgment on all the nations. And this is chapter 2, 4 through 3, 8. And this is where it gets wild and sad. I promise it gets better. 
It gets wild and sad because even though he's turned from judgment on Jerusalem to judgment upon the nations, he mentions Jerusalem again. And the best I can do with that is to think that this is poetry. What he's now doing is he's saying, Jerusalem has become so unlike me that there really is no distinction in my mind between the people of the world and the people in Jerusalem. That is, this next oracle, this judgment against the nations, is all the nations who've gone against God, the Philistines, the Moabites, those people in Jerusalem. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a child turning against their parents so much that the parent says, I can't recognize any difference between you and somebody else's child? That's what he's saying. And that's chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, as he talks about Jerusalem as if it's just yet another nation. And it leads to this powerful passage in verse 8, which would make the great close of an oracle if all God cares about is doom. Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation All my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. It sounds like the last word. Just wait. Just wait. You're going to pay. But that's not the last word from God. We know that. We read Hosea, where his own wife has betrayed him. And he goes through all the language in chapter 2 of all the things he's going to do. He's going he's to bolt the door. He's going to go find all the wedding pictures and cut her picture out. That's my paraphrase. And then he says, and she forgot me. Like, she wouldn't even know how to come home if she wanted to because I'm not even in her mind anymore. And suddenly the language changes on a dime. In Hosea 2, he switches from, I can't stand her, I'm going to leave her, I'm going to leave her alone, I'm never going to answer the door if she calls, and then I realize she wouldn't even know which door it is if she tried, and language changes to, therefore, I'm going to go out and find her, and I'm going to win her back, I'm going to play all those sweet songs on the guitar that I played to win her when I, she was up in her dorm room, and I was playing all those new, you know, those great new tunes in the 60s or whatever, and they, she was loving them. I'm going to play them all again. He says, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to win her back. In Zephaniah 3, verse 8, you hear the rage. You hear the judgment, all of which is true. God can't stand the stench that's coming up from the people so much so that there's no difference between them and the rest of the nations around them. But look at verse 9. Verse 9 suggests that this anger... This fire of wrath doesn't have to be a fire that annihilates. It can be a fire that makes pure. At that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech. 
that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove them from your midst. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. It doesn't just end there, which would be good enough. The story gets better. It would be great if he says, not only am I going to relent a little on my anger, he says, I'm going to fill this land with beauty and joy. I'm going to create a new Jerusalem and it's going to be a work and a wonder. And in the middle of it all, I'm going to have worshipers praising my holy name and I'm going to join in too. And as they all celebrate me, get this, this is beyond imagination. God says, I will sing and celebrate you. Listen, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I want you to understand that God makes sure that whatever he does leaves a message and he wants the ultimate message to be, this is the Lord your God. So remember in Exodus, they got the burning, they got the burning, um, uh, I think in Bush, that's not what I'm going for. It was the mountain, the top of the mountain. And you got the fire and the smoke and the people see it and they think, "Ah, I don't want to get close. Moses, you go for us. Yes, the fire and the smoke represent something about God. He's holy. He's pure. He's separated. We ought to recognize that. But they people couldn't get close enough to see who he is at his heart. Moses did. And that's why Moses' face shone so bright. The people couldn't even look at it. And so God one day says, I want you to see who I am at my heart. So besides the billows of smoke and the fire... He sends Jesus Christ and says, this is who I am. Jesus who says, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is who God is. And so when he says, I will bring destruction, I will bring pain, I will bring the fire of my burning anger, that is part of God's justice. But if that's the only picture that's left, It's not a complete picture. And so he says, I'm going to do something even better than that. So you'll get the full picture of who I am. What if instead of just leaving rubble, I do a work and a wonder, and I bring about something better than it was before. And in the end of his book, he says, at that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Remember Job? God deals with Job and Job suffers loss and loss and loss. And there's a point to all of this. And at the last chapter, it says, God restored to Job 
more than he ever had before. This is what happens when God's at work. It's not just that. I want you to notice in chapter 3, God restores Jerusalem as the center of the nations. He sings and rejoices over them himself, and he gathers up the outcast, the poor, the broken. He gives them a place of honor, and notice he's trying to bring people in, not just former Jerusalemites. If you look at verse 9 and verse 10, he's talking about the nations around them as well. Here's the power. Jerusalem, you've messed up. In fact, you're so bad, I can't tell any difference between you and the other nations. Therefore, I'll produce a salvation so big, it will return you and other nations to my fold. Don't you hear the gospel in that? Remember, it's Galatians that says the gospel was preached to Abraham. And what was the gospel preached to Abraham? In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I am going to have a nation. And through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Watch me do something greater than you could possibly imagine, says the Lord. So what are we learning from Zephaniah? Something negative but important. Judgment will come even to those who used to find their value in ancestry and inheritance, in their position, in their titles. Doesn't matter. Judgment's coming. And only a relationship with God himself can possibly be the firebreak from that. God is just. But on the positive note, judgment on Jerusalem is also a judgment on all the nations, which means the restoration of Jerusalem is an opportunity for everyone everywhere if they're willing to humble themselves and seek the Lord and seek his face, they too can be grafted in. And aren't we glad? Because every one of us belong to those other nations. And we're grafted in because of Christ. Then we come to Haggai. I want you to ask yourself, if you only had one day left to live, what would you do? I think whatever you come up with probably tells us what your priorities are. If you only had one day left to live, what would you do? My guess is you try to think of something that's very fulfilling, something meaningful, something lasting. And do you find something meaningful, something something lasting in doing what God has called you to do? or in doing what you want to do? That's a question that Haggai is raising. What's the priority in your life, and where do you find meaning and purpose and security and hope? The backstory here is the exile of Babylon. That happens in 587, 586 BC. And now 70 years have passed. And you have Haggai around 520, because you count backwards from B.C. times. And Haggai is now living in a world that's actually ruled by the Persians. Remember, Babylon took them into captivity, but now Babylon's been destroyed and Persia's in charge. And Jerusalem is uh, allowed to be rebuilt. The Persians had this interesting idea. Other nations after them copied this idea, which is, 
you can rule with an iron fist and make everybody feel bad that you're in power, but that just means your power won't last very long. So if you can make people feel better, that their life is better with you in power than it was without you in power, your reign will last longer. So God raises up Cyrus, and Cyrus and the Persians say, why don't you go back to your own city? And why don't you rebuild your own city? How can we help you do that? Sounds pretty good. And other places will talk about how that's good, but Haggai says it wasn't that good. And he gives a series of messages over four months. And you have four sections in Haggai in which Haggai says, actually, things don't quite go the way they should. The people who came back to rebuild come through the high priest Joshua and a man named Zerubbabel. He was the man from the line of David. They're the leaders, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. They return and they begin to rebuild But the first section of Haggai is chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And if you're wondering if I'm picking out names for my son, Hag is not one of them. 1, 1 through 15, there's an accusation. The accusation is, you've been here for seven years. And your houses look really good. You were given money, you were given support to rebuild, and you did. You rebuilt your lawn. You rebuilt that second story on your house. You rebuilt that garage. Your houses look good. But the house of the Lord looks no different than it did seven years ago. You've focused on yourself in your day of mourning and now your day of rejoicing. You came back to recover what you had lost. And the first thing you did is you tried to recover your own sense of self and security. And it shows where your priorities are. You didn't come back and think first, how do I give God his house back? The people hear it and they respond. They say, that's a really good point. Let's go build that temple. One month later is chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And this time he has to give a, a message of encouragement. Because they've been building, but it doesn't look very good. It doesn't look anything like it did in the days of Solomon. And Haggai, who may have been an old man, it's hard to know. I have to ask Steve Choate. I know he taught on this. He may have been an old man. I read one person who says, who knows? Maybe he actually saw the glory of the old temple before it got destroyed 70 years before. I don't know. But he says, I know it doesn't look it now. But if you can see past the problem into the solution, let me tell you, what looks to you like kind of a bad remodel is the first fruits of something glorious because God promised that his future day of living and returning in his temple is going to be powerful. So he speaks of the new Jerusalem where all the nations are going to join in God's kingdom, and the temple is going to play a key role. So keep at it. What you're doing is a great work, and it's more important, more powerful, more wonderful than you realize. There's more going on than what you see. Can you hear some gospel overtones in that? His third message is two months later. It's chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, and this is a call to be faithful 
he, he reminds them of Leviticus, where in Leviticus, if you touch a dead body, you're unclean. So if you touch a dead body and then you go and you touch something else, you make that other thing unclean. And he uses that to build a parable in which he says, if your hearts aren't right, and then you go and you touch things with a, coming out of a heart that isn't right, and you try to build the temple, you're going to make the temple just as unclean as your hearts are. So be faithful to God's covenant. True repentance and covenant faithfulness is what brings blessing. And then his fourth message is chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And in those last few verses, we see the same character of God that we've seen all through the prophets. He has to end with a message of hope. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, my servant, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. He says, I'm going to get rid of all that's disturbing my kingdom, and I'm going to create a messianic king. Well, you know with this point, don't you? That our obedience matters to God, but even in our lack of complete obedience, God still keeps his end of the covenant. And what he says is, I am sending someone who will represent me. That's what a signet ring is. When the king would seal something with his ring, it meant this is the word of the king. I'm sending someone to represent me, someone I've chosen. Don't you see the gospel in Haggai? It's Jesus who ends up being the signet ring of God, the express image of God. And it is the gospel that says all nations are now blessed because of the seed of Abraham, the seed who is actually Jesus Christ. And from that seed, all the world is blessed. Do you see how Zephaniah and Haggai, even though they don't know it, they're prophesying, but what they're building looks like a rinky-dink image, a remodel, perhaps. But God says to them and says to us through them, what they're saying is important, but even they don't fully see the true image that's going to come down the road when my son, Jesus Christ, brings a message of hope to all the world. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.